Fanny Flagg has been credited with once saying, the difference between Southern writers and all other writers is that other writers take reality and exaggerate it, while Southern writers, they take reality and have to tone it down. Our second episode of Sylvania Stories features someone who could probably attest to those words. He's an SHS graduate who's currently writing a wave of acclaim for his most recent book, entitled With the Devil's Help, a true story of poverty, mental illness, and murder. Stick around for a conversation with Neil Wooten and hear about not only his writing life and stint as a stand-up comedian, but also memories of everything from The Snake Show to The June Jam. First off, talk about your origins with Sylvania. Where were you born? I was born in the hospital of Fort Payne that just got torn down, but I was living in Blake. And Blake was closed down, the elementary school there closed down about two years before I started school. So I began Head Start at Sylvania. My two older sisters who are two years and four years older actually went to Blake but I didn't ever go to Blake so that's how I wound up going to Sylvania. So starting with Head Start. What year were you born? 1965. What's your earliest memory of being in in that community, in Sylvania community? Because I count Blake as part of that community. Uh, my earliest memory would actually go back to Chattanooga probably. I think when I was born we lived in Chavez, and then we moved to Chattanooga for a couple of years, and I have a lot of very distinct memories from there. And when I was about three, actually, that's when Dad built the property on the, I mean, built the house on the property that had been given to Mom and Dad by Mom's father. They gave her 30 acres, and that's where Mom and Dad built the house. Uh, but my earliest memories would actually go back to Chattanooga. I could probably even still drive to that house. Uh, the memories there were the, and I, I really didn't know if this was a real memory. I've always been afraid of horses. In my memory, there was this white horse that would get loose and terrorize the neighborhood. That doesn't happen, that's not real. Werewolves, yeah, but horses terrorizing the neighborhood. So finally, I don't know, when I was about 25 or so, I finally asked mom, I said, was that real? She said, oh yeah. I said, this old woman had this big white horse at the end of the road. Our road just dead ended into the neighborhood. This horse would get loose, and she said it would run you over. I can remember hiding under an old, probably 40 model Chevrolet that was up on blocks at a house as this horse ran by. So that's probably the earliest memory is that horse terrorizing the neighborhood in Chattanooga. So, but then when did you guys then come back to Sand yeah, Mountain? We, Dad had been working on the house uh, and Blake clearing the land. I mean, the land was all wooded, so he had to build a little trail down to it there. And then uh, my dad was an expert carpenter, uh, but patience was not one of his virtues. So he threw up this little house and with the intention of building a nicer house later on. But, you know, we all through high school, I went there. So, yeah, I was probably about three when we moved into the little shack where we where I lived till I graduated high school. 
or almost. So give me some background on your parents. Your, you said your, um, your mom's parents gave them the property. Where did your dad grow up and where did your mom grow up? Well, oddly enough, my mom grew up on the same road where she lives now, where the, our little house was built. And eventually they have a bigger house now. Uh, but she grew up on that same road. It was actually called Jackson Road before 911 came around and they changed it to County Roads. Uh, Leela Jackson was her mom. Harley Jackson was her dad who was a fisherman and farmer. Uh, she was this quiet little girl who went to Henniger and then transferred to Sylvania. Uh, I'm not sure why she went to Henniger. I think they had a lot of relatives there, but where the dirt road dead ended into Highway 27, just a little ways down is where my dad's grandparents lived, Van and Della Wooten, and his, his father never raised him, so he was raised by his grandparents, Van and Della, and you could literally see mom's house, Leela, my mom's mom's house, from where dad was raised. So they uh, grew up just, you know, within a stone's throw of each other, never talked to each other. He never talked to her when he was in the army, he had her name tattooed to his arm, and then when he got out of the army, he showed it to her and proposed. So he was just that confident, I guess, you know. Of course, you know, he had been traveled world, you know, he was worldly, you know. My mom had never met anybody like him, so that's how they ended up together. But had they, but they, they didn't know each other before then? No, that, I mean, he they, they probably his, saw each other, but never spoke. So he basically had his eye on her. For the lack of a better way of putting it. I think, it. yeah, I think it was a safe choice. You know, uh, I mean, my dad was extremely intelligent, and he could have settled anywhere probably, And uh, but I think she was, you know, he probably wanted a family like most people do when they get that age, and she just seemed like, a, you know, it would be a sure thing. And, you know, and she told me, she said she was just blown away when he, showed interest and showed her the tattoo and yeah so that's how it all mom was uh she did graduate sylvania and uh but you know never went to college and she just worked in hoser mills up until 15 20 years ago you know that's all she did for a long time and then what did your dad do my dad did everything he could do but work I don't, I can only remember him having one regular job and it wasn't a regular job. He drove a truck for two years and that's because nobody's looking over his shoulder. I mean, he, uh, uh, along with high intelligence, he had a huge chip on his shoulder, you know, certainly didn't like authority. So he could have never clocked in somewhere and had somebody telling him what to do all day. But my dad could make a lot of money. You know, he sold stainless steel cookware for so long. I mean, so many people on the mountain bought cookware from him. But again, he could schedule dinners when he wanted. He could work when he wanted. And he farmed. And he could make a lot of money farming. He could make a lot of money doing anything. It was just not consistent. You know, that whole concept of getting a paycheck every week just was so far into him, you know. So it, if it wasn't for mom, we wouldn't have had much stability at all like obviously the power companies and the phone companies and the whoever, you know, they, they were very stingy. They wanted payments every month and, you know, to my dad that seemed a little excessive. So we went without electricity and running water most of my childhood. How many of you 
were there then? How many siblings? There were five kids, uh, finally. Uh, Julene, four years older than me. Nina, two years older than me. Denise came along four years after me, and my little brother Breland came along nine years later. So we were spread out pretty good after the first three of us. But the three of us, Julene, Nina, and Neil, they were the three amigos, the three musketeers for a long time. We probably put up with the most from our dad. All the siblings went to Sylvania? Julene and Nina did start at Blake, but after Blake closed, yeah, then all of us, we all went to Sylvania. So talk about, because um, we'll get to the books in a little bit, we'll get to post-Sylvania, but talk a little bit about Sylvania just in terms of football team, baseball team, also basketball some, or no? Uh, no basketball past sixth grade. Everybody kept growing except me, height-wise, so I was vertically challenged, so. What sort of memories do you have from participating in sports at Sylvania, whether it's football, baseball? Do you have any strong memories? From well, I was very athletic as a kid, so I, I, all fond memories. I played baseball about 11 years, and I don't have any bad memories with baseball. I mean, that was just my, you know, by far my favorite. Uh, football, I didn't like. It was just expected, you know, if you, especially if you're someone as strong as I was, it was expected for you to play in the South. You know, that's like the second religion in Alabama, you know, football, you know. But I was, I was good at it, but I didn't really care for it. But, you know, I don't have bad memories of it. Just the practices during the summer were so horrible. Other, actually, it was sports that were not school sanctioned that I really enjoyed the most. Arm wrestling was always my favorite. When I was right out of high school, right after I graduated Sylvania, I won the SEC championship. I weighed 180 pounds and uh, beat some really big guys in arm wrestling, you know. I liked power lifting, you know. But I don't have any bad memories of sports. My coaches, your dad was one of my coaches for several years, and to this day I still call him coach because that's the only thing I know, uh, it's the only thing I've ever known him as. And he was one of those coaches that every kid needs to get because it wasn't a win or die, you know, it wasn't, it was, never, never a negative comment to the kid and certainly wouldn't raise his voice, which I assume growing up with him, you, hopefully you guys had the same kind of uh, role model as we did as players on the team, you know, so yeah, I don't have any bad memories of sports in school. Talk a little bit about the niblets and math team. I would say my life probably started going a little bit different direction, as in more of a positive direction. I was not a bad kid. I was just, I just thought all the rules were a little too strict. <laughs> you know, they, it was hard for me to maintain uh, those tight lines that they drew for students. But seventh grade, I had Miss Niblett for pre-algebra, and I think really things started changing for me then because she was, I had some nice teachers, don't give me my first grade teacher, Miss Garmony, sixth grade teacher, Miss, oh my gosh, Peggy, gosh, I'm Bell? so, Edwards, it was Edwards. Peggy Edwards back then, loved her. I love Miss Milligan and Miss Shankles, Mr. Holt was great, but Miss Niblett was the first one that recognized something in me that no other teacher had ever seen or never taken the time to acknowledge, and uh, so yeah, she just, I had never had that. I had never had an adult realize that I was not normal when it came to math. And she, of course, encouraged that. So, and I stuck with it. And of course, when I was in 11th grade, 
they announced tryouts for the math team. I went to the tryouts to get out of class. Anytime I could get out of class, if it was going to the snake shows, which I love those, I didn't care what it was. If they could be having a, a talk on mud, I don't care what it was. If I could get out of class. So I went and to the tryouts to get out of class and I scored the highest, you know, and Miss Niblett wasn't shot, but most people that had gone to school with me pretty much my whole school life at Sylvania, I think were like, wait a minute, Neil? You know, so I landed a spot on the math team. I would later win two first place trophies. And I even mentioned in the epilogue of my new book coming out, you know, that she was the one that, you know, influenced me. And it was halfway through my senior year that she asked me, you know, where are you going to college? I thought she was joking. I didn't think I was allowed. I didn't understand the world, you know. So I just thought wealthy people go to college, you know. Certainly not somebody that grew up where I did and how I did, you know. And uh, she convinced me that, no, it's legal, you can, you know. And that probably changed everything for me, that one conversation. Talk a little bit more about people who maybe don't know about math team and how that operated, like a competition. Math teams are fascinating. The competitions are incredible. The tournaments, we would leave early before daylight like you would imagine going to any kind of uh, uh, competition. And we would go to these schools. I will tell you one in particular, and it'll sum up how all of them went, except for the finality. But we had a math tournament in Austin High School in Decatur. Big 5A school, of course. We didn't have the category to put us in. You know, the, the people putting on the competition didn't. So they had to put us in with the lower larger schools. First you have a written test and this particular day the written test consisted of 40 questions and four tiebreakers and later you have what they call ciphering where one person from each team sits in a chair on a big auditorium floor with one person from every team and they put a big uh, problem on a big screen from a projector and everybody solves it and the first one to solve it gets 10 points then eight then six and four then two. So that is very stressful trying to solve you know these math problems of course were be, some of them beyond college level I mean this was not high school problems in these tournaments but the rule of thumb was and Miss Niblett drummed this into us over and over was only answer the ones you're absolutely sure because they had a penalty for guessing so if you got did you compete in any of the tournaments yeah, yeah so some of the questions counted I mean all the questions if you got them wrong counted a negative score and there would be people at the end who would have negative scores on their final. So you answered the ones you knew. There was something very weird about this day. I've never experienced it before or since. I've experienced physically, you know, some days in baseball you can't do anything wrong. Some days in football, you know, everything goes right. But this day at this math tournament in Austin, at Austin High School, I was, I was looking at these problems and even if I had never seen them and didn't know the formula, it was coming to me. I was actually devising the formula for them. So I answered all 40 and all four tiebreakers. And afterwards, which was customary, Miss Niblett would ask everyone how they did, how many they answered. She had to know this. And she asked someone, how many did you answer? And they said nine. She said, oh, that's good. She asked someone else, how many did you answer? Eleven. She said, that's good. And I'm like, please, let there be an earthquake or something happen before she gets to me, you know. But it didn't. So she got to me. She said, Neil, how many did you answer? And I said, uh, I answered all of them. Oh, gosh, her face turned red. She was so angry. I've told you, I've told you. And I'm like, I think I did pretty good though. And sure enough, when they posted the scores, I had the by far the highest score on that. So the I still remember that ceremony where they, we had sat through many of them. We had never brought home a trophy ever. 
you have everybody in the auditorium and they're there behind a podium and they got all these trophies and they're going through each category and each level and they get to mine and they call out third place somebody from some school and it's a guy that gets up and he was i just remember he's a real skinny guy with a really big adam's apple and really thick glasses probably had a room full of mat trophies and the same when they called out second place and i thought darn i was so hoping to get in at least and, and of course the big shock you know when they called out first place Neil wooten sylvania high school i was like oh my gosh i think i tripped twice running down the and we wound up winning two first place trophies that day so that was a big day for the school, that was a big day for me, and uh, I had never experienced that kind of recognition for being able to do something, you know, not not physically speaking, you know, in academics, you know. It's interesting because I think that was a time when, you know, you guys really put the math team on the map yes. for Sylvania and for any small school. I can remember that you would go and, and compete at Grissom and there'd be so many of those schools, like you said, that were massive schools from, Jamison, from, from Jamison, cities. Yeah. And then here's Sylvania showing up. You know, yeah. that there's no one else really there that's even close to being our true peers in terms of a school. So um, I'm sure they were flabbergasted by who is this school, for one, because they probably never even heard of Sylvania. Right. And then two, not only have we never heard of them, and they're small, they've come over here and they've won in these categories. They're actually competitive, yeah. yeah. I'll tell you really a story that I have never, I've completely forgotten about, and it's a, uh, just a funny little story about it. We were at some tournament somewhere, and we were all sitting in the auditorium type place, you know, I think before the competition started or maybe after the competition, there were these four cute girls sitting in front of me, and any girl was cute to me, I don't care what, you know, they were, but there were these four cute girls in front of me, and uh, I, of course, struck up a conversation and we were talking to them and uh, they were from a big school but these four made up the entire math team and I said just you four and and one of the girls said yeah that's all we could get to join I said join I said at our school you have to make the math team and the girl said oh my gosh that sounds like the football team I said oh no football team you can join so it's amazing looking at that little school in Sylvania. They needed, of course, small school, you need football players. And everybody went out, and they never cut anyone. Because being from a small school, the amount of people that went out never exceeded your limit of players that you're allowed to have. So you didn't get cut. But here the math team, Miss Niblett, you know, she was determined to do it right, and she did. And so, yeah, so little school showing up like that. And, you know, I don't think it made any newspapers back in the day, you know, or but, but nowadays, it would probably go viral, a story like that. Talk a little bit about, you know, there's a few things that I think about from that time that are now gone. Talk about Finley's Grocery. Is there anything that you can remember about Finley's? Is there anything that, whether it's a story or just explaining to people what Finley's was, talk a bit about Well, that. we didn't shop at Finley's much. I remember going there just a few times with Mom. I remember Pete, I can remember being very little and... and Pete giving me some nickname, and, uh, and I just remember Fearless Finley, the wife, and her prediction. Sylvania was going to win no matter what. Even when they had lost 29 games in three years, she still predicted they would win. So what I miss about Finley's is not – I didn't really know the people that well. I know a lot of people did, and, you know, they loved them. It's, it's really just that whole part of Americana that I miss. I almost bought that building recently just because it was for sale, and – the memories of you know but uh so we didn't live inside sylvania so living right at the edge of the mountain we went into fort Payne mostly to 
shop and do things, but but that crossing right at the Sylvania crossing, which eventually got a caution light, now has a red light. You know, we have we have so evolved as a city. You know, it has we have one red light in town now, uh, but that hometown mom and pop store right there is a, a part of who we are. That's you know, it's one of those things we're never going to have again. I mean, there may be some somewhere in the country, but it's not mainstream Americana anymore, and I, I, I miss that. You know, and then he, he got into video rentals. I remember that. We did go there when he started renting videos back in the VCR days, you know. But other than that, I don't really have a lot of memories about them, you know, other than being very pleasant. Most people don't remember RBs because that, that's it. But Dad would stop in there any time I rode with him to town, he would stop there and get a Pepsi and Moon Pie, no, a RC Cola and Moon Pie, which was just a country thing. And it's probably where I first started my Coke and peanuts, which sadly I still do today. And the doctors keep saying, you don't need sodas and you don't need peanuts. You don't need, but I did, it is diet soda, diet Coke and unsalted peanuts now. Not quite the same, you know, but, but yeah, that RV Slater's are Schrader's. I keep saying Slater too. I just from my childhood remembering it, remembering the name wrong. But uh, that was a big thing. Dad always stuck there, and he would go in there, and and I would just watch him and that guy just talk back and forth, and go, "Wow, you know these these country folks, especially on the mountain. I mean, there's so many storytellers. I mean, that's just you know that storytelling gene." Uh, which I mentioned also in my book, you know, is the, the storytellers on the mountain. And we two, just two people get together and these, they spin these yarns, you know. So, but yeah, I remember RB's place. Right down below it, you had, at the time, it was Simmons. It was uh, Timmons. Gene Timmons had the store there that went through. After that, it was uh, Winkles. And after Winkles, it was Chambers. Talk about going back a, a minute, something you said. Explain to people what the snake show is. You made reference to the snake show. Explain you know, it that. turns out his daughter now does that, took over the thing, but the man that did that was, this was really a private enterprise and he would, the schools would hire him to go around and he would come around, uh, I don't remember his name, he can actually, they actually have a website dedicated to the guy now, but just a pleasant guy and he would bring out those boxes and he would bring out little garter snakes, little green snakes. He would bring out huge rattlers. I can remember this one show. That was my favorite show to come to Sylvania. This one show where he brings out this white box, like uh, the storage bins you buy nowadays with the lids. And uh, he brings this one out and he takes his little, that stick with the metal loop on the end that they hold snakes with. And he says, I got a rattlesnake here. I'm going to try to get it out if I can get it out without breaking the stick. And we're laughing. You know, he's pulling our leg. And he reaches into that thing, and he pulls out this rattlesnake. This thing had to be, I don't know, it wasn't that long, maybe six feet long, but it was the biggest, fattest son of a gun I'd ever seen. It really, and the stick was bending, or that rod they used was bending when he pulled it out. And they always ended the show with a python or anaconda. I can remember being first grade when uh, they asked for volunteers to help hold that, and I was, boy, I was right there. He called me because I was jumping up more than anyone. I have loved snakes since I was born, I guess, still do to this day. I see one on the road. I don't care if it's a rattlesnake. I'll get it off the side of the road, you know. And But, yeah, those snake shows were something else. I wish I knew that guy's name. I had looked him up a few years ago, and I'd even contacted, sent an email to this daughter about possibly doing a book on him. 
And uh, but I don't know if the email was good. You know, the address was good. But apparently, the the daughter still does the shows at the schools. I don't know if they still do Sylvania or not. Do you remember the snake shows? Oh, of course. It made me think to also ask you if you have any kind of memories of like, did you do Junior Extravaganza? I didn't. I wasn't in it. We did it. It was during our time, but I wasn't part of it. What about the senior play? No. Um, And then can you remember, like, as a fundraiser, they had a womanless beauty pageant. I did that, yes. And the womanless wedding. I don't remember that one. We did that with the football players. I don't think a lot of people were signing up for the womanless beauty pageant, so the coach made us at least the starters on the football team. So, yeah. I remember doing that. I didn't place, although I was really sexy. But <laughs> so uh, I didn't even remember any of the students being in it. So students were in it too, because I remember it being like oh no, dads I, from the country. actually. I remember Mr. Noble being in ours. He's the only teacher I remember. But yeah, I can remember all all the football players. And this is varsity when I did it. I was probably tenth, eleventh grade. All the varsity starters. So at least fifteen guys that I remember. Tony Schrader. Uh, Chip Stoner was in it because I have a picture with several of us. You know, what's weird is I, somebody just a couple of years ago posted the picture of the basement at Sylvania. I didn't know it existed. You mean like the for the under the gym? Furnace. Under oh, the, under the furnace. No, there's the actually yeah, a, right. underneath the yeah, building. I've never been in there. I, never, I didn't yeah. know it existed. Yeah. Uh, but I never, yeah, I've never been in there. But somebody posted a picture of inside that. And it was just like a dungeon, you know, I never knew it was there. But I was only in the band room once. A teacher sent me there to look for a student. And walking into the band room, it would have been no different it had I walked into a flying saucer from another planet. It was just so bizarre to me, you know. I had no musical talent, still don't. But uh, that, you know, so I didn't, you know, I didn't really explore a lot of places when I was there. What do you remember about the old gym? It's not there. It's still there, but they don't. It's not the primary gym now. They built a new. Uh, one next, they built a new one next to. The I remember it had the rollout bleachers on the one side that stayed out, and I remember the stage on the other side. I, I, I loved it. I remember the paintings on each side. The the I always wanted to be somebody to redo the new art on the each wall of the the rams on each side, and uh, and I remember they added the girls' gym, which entrance to the far back there. I don't think I ever went inside the girls' gym. No, I just remember, you know, fond memory. You know, we played murder ball. Remember murder ball? It's like dodgeball where you try to kill each other. Aptly named, uh, you know. And I was good at basketball up until, again, everybody got taller. Uh, I just, uh, and of course, I didn't have the, the build, you know. I was stocky always, so I always had the more the build for the football and stuff, you know, and baseball was good, but uh, yeah, I I don't know, I have fond memories of it. I never went to watch games. I never went to watch any games. I like playing. I never cared about watching. Even to this day, I'll watch the Alabama-Auburn game. It's probably the only game I'll watch all year. You know, I love football, but I won't, I would much rather be playing. I never watched sports. My wife loved that, you know, the fact that I didn't watch any sports, you know, not NASCAR especially, not fishing, you know, nothing like that, you know, but not even you know, basketball, baseball, and football do I watch, so. Is, are there any other teachers that kind of stand out to you for whatever reason? It could be for, you know, that they were a great role model or they were funny or you've had funny stories about them. Is there anybody that kind of stands out to you? 
I remember every teacher well. What about uh, Mr. Wilson and Mr. Parrish? Oh, well, I don't think you can name two men that I like more in my life than those guys. They had such opposite, you know, Mr. Wilson, as far as quality of a human being goes, I don't think you're going to find somebody better. He would talk, you know, when I won that trophy, when I won those two trophies in the math team, uh, the next day I was sitting at lunch, and I uh, remember in the lunchroom they had that stage also where they did plays and stuff, and he calls me up to him and uh, just sits on the stage there, and I sat beside him, and he's like, Neil, I had no idea. It's like he was apologizing for all the paddlings he had given me because he didn't know that I had any worth. I mean, no, everybody had worth to him, but he didn't know I had that possibility of, of you know being able to do something like that. And But every time I went to his office, it was just short and sweet. You know, it was two weeks or two licks, you know. I mean, it was two hits with a paddle or two weeks of detention, you know, and... Uh, and it was always too late for me. I'm not going to sit in you know, detention, you know. And I can remember only one time, only one time in history, going to his office and I was innocent. Such a rarity for me to be innocent. And I told him, I said, I didn't do that. And I know he believed me. I wouldn't lie to him, you know. And he said, well, Neil, you've probably done something in your life that you've gotten by with that needs a paddle. And I'm like, well, who can argue with that logic? Yes, I've gotten by with lots of stuff, you know. So, yeah, he still gave me two licks. But Mr. Parrish was a different animal. Mr. Parrish was very intellectual. And uh, what was amazing was he would call you into office when he knew you did something wrong. Now, I'm, I'm only telling experiences with principals from my point of view. I only had any interactions with them when I did something wrong, which was so often it's unbelievable. Um, but Mr. Parrish would sit and talk with you like you were his best friend. I mean, he would just, I don't know if he studied psychology in college, but he would just completely tear your guard down. And then, so did, why did you do that? Oh, I wasn't thinking sorry. I mean, for you, you're confessing before you know. And, uh, and again, I wouldn't have lied to him anyway, but, but he, he was not, I never went into his office with fear. And I never left his office with bitterness, you know. It was just, I entered with respect, I left with respect. He would walk me out with his arm around my shoulder. I mean, he, he saw good in me no matter what I did. You know, he didn't focus on the bad. He, he just focused on what he knew to be good, you know. And then he really had a way of bringing that out of you, you know. But both of those men, exceptional men, I would say. Exceptional role models. Of all the teachers you talked about, we never even got on Mr. Neblett. Talk about it if you want to talk oh, about it. Oh, I don't have anything to say. No, I was kidding. Actually, I, I could talk forever on Mr. Niblett. He's probably uh, my favorite person in the world, let's put it that way. I've never met a man with such a good sense of humor, with such a big heart. And actually, he wrote the... Have you read Returnity, my first read, novel? Yeah. He, he wrote the uh, forward to it, and it, and the whole book is because of him. It's a It's a... Christian sci-fi, because think about Mr. Nimmit. He is definitely a scientific mind. He's a science teacher, and yet he has a devout Christian faith. And I didn't know that could exist until I met him, you know. And as he points out, there can't possibly be a conflict between the two. If God created every scientific force in the universe, how can there be a conflict between science and faith? And there can't be. So yeah, he, uh, 
he, he was probably a big part of the reason that, and people think the professor in the book is based on him. I didn't really base it on anyone. And certainly the main character, Max, they think it's based on me. And I said, no, I'm Rollo. I'm his friend Rollo, who's a short, fat, and walks like a tank. That's me, you know, and, and, and smart aleck, you know, that's, but it, it just resonated with folks, you know. There's a lot of Bible study. As a matter of fact, I'm trying to republish a longer version of it. Now, I don't know how that'll work out, but it, it you know, that was my first novel, and it, it, it did so well. It's just really surprising that the first novel could do as well as that one did. But Mr. Niblet, Mr. Niblet's the top marks for me. He's probably my favorite person in the world, really. Do you have any kind of memories of high school dances or harvest festival or anything like that? Do you have any memories of those sorts I did of activities? Not, I was not involved in anything. I had no experience with the fair sex, so I never went to any dances. Uh, I finally went to senior prom. That was uh, Now, after I got out of high school, I went to a lot of prom. It took me getting away from Sylvania to discover myself, uh, if that makes sense, you know. Well, talk about that. Talk about that. Go back to... You said that Miss Niblett encouraged you to consider college. Then what came next? How did you determine where you were going to go, what you were going to do? Walk me through that. I would, you know, when I was asked where I wanted to go, I said, you know, all I could think was Alabama. I mean, you know what the state is like. And then when uh, I was asked what did I want to uh, study, I had no clue. I should have just said math and been done with it, but I had no clue. So. When I was read a bunch of options, uh, architecture, they started in alphabetical order, so it didn't take long. I thought architecture includes math and art, two of my favorite things. So that's how I ended up at Auburn. You know, it was not like how you might, you know, uh, the the family and the family bloodstream, you know, kind of thing. You know, with me, it was just a, a fluke, you know. I went to Northeast for one year and then to Auburn, and then I wound up finishing at AUM many years later. I actually probably took about three years off total and went back and went to Northeast twice and then finished at AUM. Now, what degree did you get? Applied mathematics. After I did accounting, uh, architecture, and tried several other things, and finally, it's like, I, I can only do one thing, you know. And this, this was, uh, you know, there's so few people that are good at math. Obviously, the greater part of the population, you know, hates math, but it's not something I can even, uh, and possibly even you, can even, you know, brag about because it was just genes. You know, my dad literally could probably do advanced calculus in his head, and he went to second grade. He quit Blake at second grade, never went to school again, and was just that sharp, and my grandfather too, so it was just a genetic trait that was passed down. So yeah, I just finished in math because that was the only thing I could stick with. What did you decide you wanted to do when you got finished? I was already working and I stayed in doing stand-up comedy and I stayed with that. What got you into stand-up comedy? I don't think it was money to begin with. I was, uh, I was home visiting and a commercial came on for the comedy club in Huntsville. And they said, and come out Thursday nights for open mic night and try your hand at comedy. I went, wait, what? There's a place I can go do this, you know? And of course I had never done it before. You know, it's just one of those things. And, and I, I was under the false impression that people like me who had hopefully a, a decent sense of humor 
that those were the people that made comedians, and it's really not. Now, maybe the like you get up to Robin Williams level. You know, Robin Williams is probably naturally the funniest guy in the world. But the people that worked the circuit, what I finally learned was these people were no different than a Walmart warehouse employee. They clocked in, they got on that stage, and they did an act that was totally an act. You know, they don't tell jokes like people think. Tell me a joke. You know, comedians don't tell jokes. They, they put on this act, and, and they seem like the funniest people. And then when they clock out, they're some of the boringest, rudest, some mean, you know, people you can do. But I didn't realize at the time, so I thought, you know, this will be something fun to try. So I went to the place, and I met with the owner named Brian. I don't know if the guy still owns it. I know they've moved now in Huntsville. I haven't been to the new one, but uh, and I don't know if my picture is still hanging over there. But when I went over and told him I wanted to do open mic night, he goes, okay, well, let's try you out. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, get on stage there. And he, he turns off the lights, turns on the spotlights, and one man sits in the audience, and he had to do five minutes for him. And uh, that, to this day, is the hardest comedy I've ever had to do. Because, you know, it was my first time, an audience of one. What you'll learn doing comedy is the more people in the crowd, the better, because the laughter is louder, laughter is contagious, people start laughing at other people laughing. So if I could get everybody on the planet just to you know, in front of me for just a few minutes, I would be happy. But that one show I had to do in front of one person, but that's how it all started. And then uh, uh, after that, instead of going into anything to do with math, I just, uh, the comedy back then was not bad money. This was like late, this is 1987 maybe, or 88. And uh, so it, it was so it just was good money back then. It, it it's probably the most horrible job in the world. You really and I grew up in a big family, so it, it wasn't easy for me. And I love having people around. So it is a job that really demands a familiar relationship with solitude. I mean, you are traveling just you all the time. You get to a, a town where you're working, and they put you up in the most horrible little cheap hotels in the worst parts of town. I can remember being in a hotel one night in Atlanta and woke up at like three in the morning and somebody is trying to get in the door, front door, you know, uh, and it's freaked me out, you know. So, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a horrible life. And then when you work, you're working 30 minutes a night to an hour. You know, so what do you do the rest of the day? You say, well, I'm going to go to the gym. No, you go to Dunkin' Donuts. You know, you don't, you know, you try to work on a little material, but it is literally the most boring, painfully boring job you can imagine, you know, and, and most of the other comedians you didn't want to get to know. It's, it's torture doing stand-up comedy, and I did that for five years, plus keeping work. You know, I had an agency in North Carolina that was doing most of my booking, but I was on the phone constantly trying to fill in the gaps, and, you know, it's just, uh, it's, it's for some reason, after the end of the show, as people wanted to get to know you, you know, like, there's something different from you than that Walmart warehouse employee that clocks in. And there really, there really isn't a difference, you know, but it's because of that tiny glamorous aspect that some people in the industry, you know, it's like me being a, no, uh, you know, a novelist or a, a writer now uh, because there are people like J.K. Rollins and Dan Brown and we're talking the teeniest, tiniest percent of authors in the world but because they do, that's what people have in their mind. They don't know that most authors are out there working full-time jobs, uh, trying to do anything they can to uh, get their book out there and noticed. And uh, it's just a, 
it can be a decent second income, but it's very hard work, you know. So there's nothing glamorous about that either, you know. So we've talked some about the stand-up. You know, you've gone off to Auburn, you've gone to Montgomery, you finished at AUM. How did you end up in Minnesota? Wisconsin. Oh, Wisconsin. Okay. Uh, a woman, what else is going to drag a guy out of the South? Uh, I met uh, my wife online, you know, the old-fashioned way, and she was from Chicago, grew up in Chicago. Her family uh, from Mexico, and uh, she's a officer for, a federal officer, you know, with Homeland Security, and we met online and started the long distance thing, you know, and uh, I was a manager at Rhodes Furniture in Montgomery, and they announced the chain had been around since 1875, announced they were folding up, you know, going bankrupt. So Maggie had talked about, her real name's Margarita, she went by Maggie, had talked about moving to Alabama, but she had been with the government 11 years at that time. And I said, you know, don't give up your job since I'm losing mine. So we got married and I moved to Milwaukee. So that's how that happened. How long were you there? Uh, 10 years and three months. Christmas 2005 to March of 2016. Okay. And then came back here? Or 2015. And then back here, yeah. Okay. It's the first time I lived back here since my one year at Northeast, though. How was it moving back after all that time? You know, uh, I'll explain it how I explain it in my epilogue. What's it like after living back here after 33 years? Is what I say in the epilogue of the book. It says... Uh, Part of it is easy as pie, you know, like the saying goes, you can take the boy from the mountain, but not the mountain from the boy, you know. Part of it is hard. Those people are certainly setting their ways here. And so I often believe that people think that when somebody moves away from this place, that the area and the people where they move to are the culprits in tainting a person's personal beliefs. I said, I think people here fail to realize that it could be a person's open-mindedness and, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you know, it causes them to seek out new people and places to begin with. You know, there are things about this area that I love and there are things about it, especially in the last decade, that I have grown to shake the foundation of who I am as a Southerner. We won't get into that, though. Talk about, so you, you moved back here from Wisconsin. You started riding in Wisconsin, though, right? I started writing, yes, I wrote my first novel. I, I probably wrote my first book before I moved, but I didn't publish it. My first novel that I published, Fraternity, uh, which won 10 national awards, uh, I wrote in Milwaukee, yes. When did you start the current book? When did I start it? 43 years ago. But I actually started writing it. It took me about a year to write, and it's been about a year since I completed it with all that. This is the first book I have a major New York City literary agent on. You know, I've, I've done pretty well for an indie author, um, which is, again, it's a very tough industry to, to get into. So, but I've had more rejections than you can imagine. So. Finally, when a huge, one of the biggest New York City literary agents wrote me back and said, I love this book, I want to represent it, I went, wait, that's not what you say. You know, it was a total shock. And then 34 rejections later, uh, it's interesting when you talked about your memories at four, and, and I talk about my memories at four, the one big editor for Simon & Schuster said, 
I just don't think he could remember all this from that age. And I'm like, you know what? I have almost a, what's it called? Idolectic memory? No, I have almost a, a photographic photographic memory. And then there's the other one where you remembered it. But uh, anyway, uh, I said, if you have my childhood and a memory like that, I said, no, you don't forget things. So the, the thing is, is my memory, and I think a lot of people are like this, you know, I need 40 years for my memory to be, you know, really, really great, you know. Ask me what I had for lunch yesterday and I, I probably couldn't tell you, you know, but I can remember things in elementary school and even my life before school in, you know, incredible detail. First book is a novel. Uh, the first book was a novel, a Christian sci-fi novel, which turned out to be a very great uh, genre, you know, genre to write in. Uh, my last book is really, I don't think, is going to be classified. They're actually selling it. The, the publisher is calling it True Crime. Okay. Uh, but it's really a true crime memoir. It's uh, chapters 1 through 19. All the odd number chapters are a memoir from my point of view. Chapters 2 through 20, the even numbers, are from my grandfather's point of view. Okay. So the main premise is that, not to give away the storyline, but when I was growing up in Blake, I don't remember this ever being the case in Chattanooga, but uh, it could have been there. No, uh, yeah, it could have been. But when I was growing up in Blake, uh, we were always followed by a black car with men in black suits. Uh, sometimes they would just park at a distance and watch us with binoculars. Sometimes they would literally follow right behind us in our car. And sometimes they would be brazen enough to knock on our door and that always resulted in a shouting match between them and dad, you know. Them threatening to put him in jail, dad threatening to kick their butts, you know. I don't know if their threats were real, but I'm pretty sure dad was, you know. But I thought this was normal. You know, you're a kid. I assumed every family in America was followed by a black car minute. And this is, you know, this is what America is, you know. I had no idea, and uh, I didn't realize that my grandfather, my dad's father, Pete Wooten, uh, had been convicted of murder in 1963, and he went to Kilby Prison, which was right, actually when I built a house in Kusada outside of Montgomery, I was like a mile, and I was like, why do those gates look so familiar? Well, there's pictures of my dad there, you know. Uh, but he was there two years. And he didn't cotton to prison life, so he escaped and was never caught. So the, these agents, and I don't know what agents they, they were. I don't know who handled that back then. I don't know if the ABI had been established yet in 1965. He, my mom was pregnant with me when he escaped from prison. I don't know if it was they had a Federal Bureau of Prison agents or if it was uh, FBI, I don't know who they were, but they always dressed in black suits with black ties and drove a black car, you know, so but I just thought that was normal. So all the books I've written have been fiction. Even the one about Granny Dollar is historical fiction. It's a true character, but there was a lot I didn't know about what happened in her, you know, had to make up. There was not documented because she died in 1931. What do you want to do next? I don't have any goals left. I want this book, I want to be a New York Times bestselling author. I don't care if I hit the number five spot, you know, I just want to, if I don't do it with this book, 
I'll write another. I have, I start books. I probably have 20 books that I start and nothing compels me to finish them. You know, whatever I felt that they would make a good book to begin with does not stick with me. And I think a lot of people go through that. So until I find something that moves me, I am working on a book and it kind of ties into what I mentioned about moving back here and my views on the, on the South. Uh, and my agent loves it if I can finish it, but I'm probably only about a third of the way through it now. And she only does, my, my agent only does nonfiction. I mean, she'll publish anything fiction I write, she said, but, but this book is another nonfiction uh, just from personal experience, and it's titled Keep Your Bible Belt On So You Don't Show Your Ass. And she loves the title, and it's just my experiences with church. We did not go to church as a kid. So as my, and so never belonging to a church, I've probably been to more churches than most people. I think I've been to probably every denomination, you know. And uh, it's my experiences in the, in the church, the church being an entity, by the way. Uh, I listened to something on the drive down here, and then hearing you talk made me think to then ask you, um, what you think about, or if you have thoughts on, or a perspective on J.D. Vance? Oh, J.D. Vance? Uh, I don't have many good perspectives other than, you know, he wrote a great book. Uh, what I don't like about his book, and I read the book, and I saw the movie in Glenn Close, oh my gosh, she's like his grandmother. I mean, it's amazing what a job she did. Uh, what I don't like about J.D. Vance's book is that a he's not a hillbilly he never he was born in ohio because his grandparents had lived in kentucky uh that is all it took you know and he, and he plays on that stigma he does two things one he he seems to be he tends to be offended by the stigma and on the other hand his whole book is trying to sell it and even the subtitle a culture in crisis you know the scare the white man you know we're being overrun you know and uh everything about that book is horrible to me you know there's a there's when he's at yale and that's another thing he's trying to show you that white privilege doesn't exist because he was poor he was dirt poor and went to yale that book is a testament to white privilege and he was paid for and in the, in the beginning of the book, he's trying to get a job with an intern at one of these big uh, law firms. And, you know, they pay $30,000 a year. When I went to Auburn, internships usually didn't pay anything, much less $30,000 for the summer. So he's trying to get a job, you know, so that he can help. He's already got all this other money given to him to go to, to, go to Yale. So uh, he's talking at this table. And, uh, and, and when people ask him where he's from, anywhere in the book, it's not Ohio. He steals his grandparents' heritage. He's got to throw that in there. You know, like, I, it just makes me sick that he has to do that. And, uh, and at one point he talks about how his, well, I really were from Kentucky. You know, he always says it. I really were from Kentucky. And, all. and uh, that's where most of my family still lives. And one of the lawyers said, well, what's that like going back to visit? And he said, you're probably like, ooh, who are all these rednecks? And he becomes, you know, in the book he describes it as being his face, you know, it's flush, and then he goes, we don't use that term, and the tension at the table suddenly you could cut with a knife, and the guy's like, oh, sorry, and I'm like, what? Where I grew up, we embrace that term.
nothing in my book is about uh, hillbillies. I have a lot of uh, geographical information about Sand Mountain in the book, uh, but I don't play on that stigma that the rest of the world may feel about rednecks and southerners and hillbillies, you know. So I, so yeah, I think he cheated. I think he cheated, not only cheated, but cheated with stuff that didn't belong to him. So that's a, my thoughts on J.D. Vance. Cultural appropriation. Yeah. <laughs> of his own, of his own kind. Um, I'll throw out, I'll throw out two words for you to comment on. Dry County. <laughs> well, it hasn't rained lately. I can remember going to Auburn and everywhere I lived, not long after leaving the mountain, and say, oh no, it's a dry county. Well, y'all haven't gotten any rain? I mean, people had no concept of that. And uh, I don't know if you've read the blurb on my book, but it begins with, uh, you know, I grew up on Sam Mountain, you know, at a, that was a place that was uh, where everyone was white and everyone was poor. I said, you know, prohibition was still embraced. So really what they did is they didn't do anything in the 20s when prohibition was, you know, reversed. You could then, everybody could change the law. DeKalb County didn't do anything, literally. They left, and it's still in place today. They have the towns, you know, Henniger and Fort Payne and whoever, you know, that, that have voted to go wet, but DeKalb County is still dry to this day. So yeah, most people have no concept of that. Most people will never understand the phrase, let's go to the line. Go to the line, yeah, we gotta go to the county line or state line to get alcohol, you know, so. So I put that in my, uh, in the book, it says, so if you wanted alcohol, you had to drive to the Georgia state line or ask the bootlegger sitting next to you in church, yeah. Everybody knew where the bootleggers were, the police knew where the bootleggers were, but it was just part of the system, you know. That, that's, that's probably such a unique thing for people in this country, in our, our age group, to grow up in a dry county. I'll do two more words and see what you think, see what you have to say. June Jam. <laughs> you know, I went to, I think, every one of those. I was never living here. Uh, in 1983, when I was a senior, they had, uh, the Alabama band had their first concert there at Fort Payne High School. I went to it. I still have my tickets, actually, and they're actually worth something, even if they're punched. Uh, I have two tickets, and I took a date that I asked, like, the last minute uh, to go to this thing, you know, and then of course after that I was out of high school and they started the June Champs. I worked a few of them. Uh, one of the worst jobs I ever had there was the cooler checker because people, again, from all over the world had no idea what a dry county meant and they bring their coolers like they would anywhere, you know, that's one of the great things about living in Milwaukee. They have all these outdoor vents and everybody just sits and drinks everything they want right out in the open and so yeah, the June Champs were great. I mean, you get blistered beyond approach the uh, bathroom situation with the what 500 porta potties uh, porta potties was the nastiest thing you will ever deal with in your life because I think after about midday they just couldn't keep them empty and they just quit trying I think so but I think it's great that they did it I mean it's great that the boys from the band did what they did I mean even though it's so much time has passed, I don't know how many people in the rest of the world remember them, but they'll never be forgotten here. And they still maintain their 
hometown countryness, I guess, for lack of a better word. Randy Owens just walks the streets every other day and just greets anyone. And that's really a wonderful thing, everything that they did for this. I mean, those big, nice new hotels that are still here and still do tons of business, even though the June Jam's not even here anymore, they changed the landscape of the, the area. So uh, the June Jams were a part of history we'll never forget. I loved them. That's it for our show this week. A huge thank you to Neil for taking time to be part of it. You can purchase his books at big retailers such as Amazon and Walmart.com or from your favorite independent bookseller. If there's someone you think we should interview, send us an email at info at sylvaniastories.com. Until next time, keep collecting those stories. <laughs>